Your objective is the line vertical 294.5, horizontal 276.6. You will take your objective and hold it at any cost until support arrives. Colonel Cromwell Stacy, Commander, 308th Infantry Regiment, 77th Division, American Expeditionary Forces, Argonne Forest, October 1st, 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 71, The Lost Battalion, part one, Into the Charlevoix. A hearty thanks to my man Rob Laplander for the opening quote for this and the next episodes. All of the quotes for the next episodes will be coming from his book, Finding the Lost Battalion, Beyond the Rumors, Myths, and Legends of America's famous World War I epic, which is really the one book you need to read on this subject. So, we've got some admin notes to go through before we begin. Let's start off with PayPal shoutouts to Andrew, Michael, and Paul. Thank you for your generous donations. Patreon shoutouts go out to our newest patrons there. Madeline, Keith, Elad, Blair, whose grandfather fought at Vimy Ridge and other places, David, and Bart. Thank you all for signing up to support the podcast continuously. While we're here, let's do Patreon pitch time. As patrons on Patreon, you will have early access to all new episodes, as well as transcripts and bibliographies for those episodes. Patrons also have other perks, such as extra episodes, that have not yet been released. Patrons currently have access to an episode on the battle for Feme and Femet in the summer of 1918, and as patrons requested, we are working our way through the Battle of Tannenberg. There are plans, too, for an episode or two on the little-covered 1918 Battle of Soissons. If this sounds interesting to you, check us out on www.patreon.com forward slash Battles of the First World War podcast. Patronage of the BFWWP can begin with as little as $1 per episode and it is greatly appreciated. Patrons are only charged when a new episode is released. Shoutouts now for listener appreciation. So, Pete from Rolling Meadows, thanks for listening. Big respect to Jacob, who listened to the Psalm series not once, not twice, but three times. My goodness. And... To listener Stephen, who shares every post I make on the Facebook or the Twitter. I see you, man, and thank you. I appreciate it. All right, folks, let's get back to the front, and let's get back up in the Argonne, as the saying went back in those days. We are at the point now where we are going to visit 
one of the two perhaps best-known American experiences of the Great War, the story of the Lost Battalion. The story of the Lost Battalion became a national sensation back home even before the men surrounded on that hillside had been relieved. A word, though, on the title of Lost Battalion. Uh, In my family, I'm known as the reliable guy, the guy you can count on to get things done. But I am not known as the fun guy. So I'm here to explode the fun balloon with a lit cigarette burning with a healthy dose of cynicism and some harsh reality. The Lost Battalion was never lost in the direction or place sense of the word. They knew where they were the whole time they were in their ordeal. I cannot locate the source now, but Rob Laplander tells me it's in his book. I know I saw it there somewhere. And so I'm going to paraphrase here. And this is a quote that went around the veterans. They all shared it. It's not attributed to one person. But the quote goes something like this. Lost. The Germans knew where we were the whole fucking time. We're going to return to our narrative on the Meuse Argonne on the night of October 1st, 1918. On the far left of the American First Army front, in the dark of a wet and raw evening, Signal Platoon Sergeant Charlie Cahill caught up with Major Charles Whittlesey just behind the 77th Division's front line in the thick Argonne Forest. Sergeant Cahill had heard of the attack plans for the next day and wanted to know how much communications wire the Major thought he might need in order to run up a telephone line as the 308th Infantry Regiment advanced. You haven't got enough wire to reach where I'm going, Whittlesey replied sharply. He then disappeared into the pitch darkness of the Argonne at night. The snappy answer wasn't characteristic of the young major, nor was the use of contractions, for that matter. Having just come off the hill named L'Homme-Mort, on which his 1st Battalion, 308th Infantry, and his sister, 2nd Battalion, had been surrounded for two days, Whittlesey faced the prospect of the same situation happening again. After another bloody, difficult, and exhausting day in the Argonne, he had just tried to fight the orders with his regimental commander, Colonel Cromwell Stacy. Whittlesey had been unsuccessful. Orders were orders. He understood that, even though he disagreed with the orders. And the acceptance of both thoughts at the same time likely pissed him off like few other things might. Whittlesey's 1st Battalion and the supporting 2nd Battalion had gone into the previous day's attacks with the understanding and direct orders that attacks were to be, quote, pushed without reference to troops to the right or left, end quote. So he had done that. He had pushed his attack into the Argonne Forest, and he had gotten himself surrounded and stranded for two days. Whittlesey and his fellow 2nd Battalion commander, Captain George McMurtry, knew it was pure chance that the Germans hadn't slaughtered their combined battalions on the north face of La Morte. They had certainly set themselves up for just such a possibility. But they had made it, 
The Germans had melted away, and they had been relieved. The worn and haggard doughboys of Whittlesey's Tactical Two Battalion Group had had enough time to clean up and get some hot chow before new orders came in. These new orders were for the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 308th to continue the push up the Havane d'Argon, to get to the Havane de Charlevoix, and then cut the east-west road running between Binarville and Apremont and the Air Valley to the east. Once they reached the road, they were to connect with their flanks and await further orders. The Binarville-Lavirget Road, as it was known then, known today as the D-66, was a vital German supply line that needed cutting. Its seizure would also ensure that the road could be used for American resupply efforts sooner rather than later. This was all well and good, but Major Whittlesey, Captain McMurtry, and other more junior officers foresaw the problem. First, these orders mandated a two-kilometer advance up the thickly wooded Havane d'Argonne, which was wired tight and sighted with German machine guns. At its northern end, the north-south Havane d'Argonne forms a T-junction with the east-west Havane de Charlevoix. To compound things, there was a bottleneck between two prominent hills, Hill 205 on the west or left side, and Hill 198 on the east or right side ravine. Whittlesey worried about getting stretched too far and too thin. He worried about getting too far forward and being cut off again. The battalions gathered their gear, loaded up on ammunition, and attacked as ordered on the morning of the 1st of October, 1918. Jump-off was at 0700, and for the first two and a half hours, there was little resistance to the gray-green ghosts in the forest up ahead. It was around 10 that morning when Company A from 1st Battalion ran into trouble on Hill 210, one of the hills forming the walls of the ravine. As Private Lee McCollum recalled later, quote, we were given orders to cut a path through the underbrush. Much to our surprise, we were not fired upon. We came to a bend in the ravine and could see why we had come through without being molested. In a little clearing in front of us was what remained of a large building. One of our shells had made a direct hit on the roof. Hardly had we reached this opening when we were straight with machine gun and sniper fire. There was no place for us to go except straight up the hillside. Quickly, we climbed to the ridge in safety near the crest of the hill. End quote. Lieutenant William T. Scott, the new commander of Company A, assigned just that morning, was promptly wounded and evacuated in the ensuing combat. He had been with the company for just six hours. Major Whittlesey sent messages to the rear stating that he had company elements maneuvering on the German machine guns. He was trying to be careful and eliminate all of the threats ahead as the attack advanced. Later, during the day, he would bring the supporting 2nd Battalion up to augment his combat striking power. It still wouldn't help. 
The Germans pushed back hard, even though they were stretched thin. Further up north, the French were attacking on the western slope of Hill 205. A Lieutenant Goebel, who commanded part of the 5th Company of the German Württembergisches Landwehr Infanterie Regiment Nummer 122, 122nd Landwehr, wrote that it was predictable that the enemy would begin their big October 1st offensive with even more energy, since the terrain was so favorable to them. So I tried to procure as much ammunition as possible. On Hill 198, on the eastern side of the T-junction bottleneck, at the northern end of the Argonne Ravine, the Germans were especially thin on manpower. And it was towards here that the 307th Infantry Regiment was attacking to the right of the 308th. The morning bombardment, though, did nothing to break up the belts of German wire. The German machine gun teams shattered the groups of doughboys, throwing themselves forward at the enemy positions. Some American scouts managed to slide through gaps in the enemy lines to report on conditions behind the wire, but German infiltrators were doing the same through the holes in the American lines. By the end of the day, the 307th had pushed forward an average of 400 meters. New orders came down from the AEF First Corps in light of the day's limited progress. To the east, the 28th Division and the 305th Infantry would continue their assault on La Chêne-Tendu. To the west and northwest, the French would attack Hill 205 again from the south and west. The 77th Division was to attack with no concern for flanks or losses. Major General Robert Alexander, commanding the 77th, was told from higher that, quote, flanks would be taken care of by our own people, quote. Alexander chose to forward this line to his subordinates. Brigadier General Evan Johnson, commander of the 154th Infantry Brigade, to which 307th and 308th Infantry Regiments belonged, crafted an impromptu plan for carrying out the divisions and corps' orders. Major Whittlesey would send part of his forces uphill 205 from the southeast, where they would dig in and fight a holding action to tie down enemy forces. Larger force would then attack up the slopes on Hill 198, looking to maneuver around Hill 205 and then push straight through into Charlevoix Ravine. From there, they would cut off the Binaville-La Viergette Road and await further orders. Colonel Stacy, nerves frayed from days of ceaseless combat, transferred to a new command just before a massive battle and news of a sick mother back home, was so shaken by these silly orders that he asked for a copy of them in writing. Ultimately, he forwarded the same line to Major Whittlesey and Captain McMurtry out amongst the slashed and gashed trees of the Argonne. You will press on to your objective at all costs. When Whittlesey and the others received the orders out in the field that raw evening, it was Company H of the 308th Commander Lieutenant William Red Cullen who called it what it was, 
a young and brash lawyer type who ruled his men by force of will. Red Cullen told it like it was. Well, then it will be the same thing, he said to the HQ officer delivering the orders. We'll be cut off again. Whittlesey and McMurtry made their way back to the regimental headquarters to argue this out. But this plan was foolish and being set up for failure. Both of the officers tried to reason with Colonel Stacy, but the latter dismissed the two junior officers when he had had enough listening to his questioning subordinates. And it was shortly after this episode that Whittlesey snapped at Sergeant Cahill. The 2nd of October, 1918, dawned wet, cold, and miserable. Captain Walter Rainsford, commander of Company L, 307th Infantry, said later that Captain Blagden came into the old German dugout where I had been sleeping to tell me we were to attack behind a rolling barrage at six. I remember that my teeth were chattering so with cold that I could hardly answer him. The men rose, shaking with cold, from the half-frozen mud and stumbled numbly forward through a forest white with frost. The morning was made more miserable when the final orders made their way up to the front-line trace of the regiment in the Argonne. The orders were the same from the night before. The men were to attack straight up the Havan d'Argonne as stated before. The Germans in the Gieselherstellung line were waiting for them. As soon as the American doughboys showed themselves, just about every machine gun and mortar sighted the Havan d'Argonne opened up on them. On the ravine floor, machine gun fire raked the ranks of the oncoming American boys, with mortar shells dropping among them for good measure. Behind the assault line, German artillery shells began screaming down on the support line, adding chaos. The doughboys on the ravine floor went to ground, where they recovered and began firing back. On the ravine wall to the left, men of F Company, 2nd Battalion, 308th Infantry, ran down the slope of Hill 210 towards Hill 205 like the devil was chasing them. They slammed themselves at the German line of machine gun nests on Hill 205's southern slopes while American mortar shells exploded in the trees above the enemy. The right... The Germans on Hill 198 poured merciless enfilade fire into the ravine floor and to any other targets that presented themselves. Still, Major Whittlesey and his force worked to carry out their orders. Whittlesey sent messages back he needed help on his flanks. Without help, his attack would stall, which is what it began to do by mid-morning. The New York lawyer turned army officer wanted to try to get help on the flanks before he attempted breaking through Hill 198. He was reluctant to split his command. Whittlesey was right to worry. As he worked to gather information and lead from the ravine floor, up between Hill 210 and the increasingly brutal Hill 205, Companies D and F were doing their job of drawing enemy fire and then some. Between the two hills on the left side of the Havan d'Argonne, there was what Rob Laplander describes as a wash, a deep draw of low ground that sloped down to the ravine floor. On the left, 
part of Company D would have to slip down into the wash itself and then climb out of it, all while under the muzzles of German machine guns. On the right, the other group, Company D, would have to swing out onto the ravine floor and then make its way up the hill from there. Lieutenant Charles Turner led the group into the wash. Lieutenant Paul Knight led the other group. Knight's group faced a similar situation to Turner's. Quote, to advance along the bottom of the ravine would have been suicide, as there was nothing to prevent the enemy surrounding us entirely. However, at 8.15 a.m., we had advanced but a short distance. The expected resistance was met. The Germans could see us as we went across the ravine and had occupied positions just above us. It was impossible to see them, though they were just above us, but they must have had a wonderful view of us. They showered us with hand grenades. End quote. Lieutenant Turner's men slid down into the wash and dug in there, exposed to enemy fire or firing back all the same. But they only lasted an hour before Turner realized he couldn't stay there. Down to his right, Lieutenant Knight was coming to the same realization. Knight made the call to pull his men back, defying all orders in order to save his troops. The Germans saw the pullback and reacted immediately with the counterattack. It was the worst thing to happen at the worst time. German troops laid down fire and wedged themselves in between the two groups of Americans. As Lieutenant Knight's force pulled back, the Germans cut off Turner's group. Knight didn't even realize what had happened until he had had a moment to regroup. At that point, he was 300 meters away from Turner and his men in the wash. With the heavy gunfire, it may as well have been 300 miles. Lieutenant Turner and his 14 men would shortly be slaughtered almost to a man. The attack on the left front of the 77th Division was stalling. And on Hill 198, 2nd Battalion, 307th Infantry Commander Major Carl McKinney called for more men. Captain Walter Rainsford's Company L, 307th, came up on the left and launched itself into the thick forest. They walked into a firestorm. Rainsford soon sent back a situation report. Am on this line, 295.5-275.45, and Bosch is putting Minenwerfers on us. Machine guns still in position and one is at Bend of Road ahead. I've tried to flank him every way. He is covered by other guns and is hard to see in this brush. Can't locate my guns close enough to get them with Stokes and think artillery had better be put on them. But if so, let us know in time to withdraw, as it has a habit of hitting us. Just like the 308th Infantry on the division's far left front, Colonel Eugene Houghton's 307th Infantry to their right were also struggling to advance. By continuing to press forward and put pressure on the Germans, doughboys of Captain Rainsford's Company L broke through the German wire. Only a few men could get through at a time, but the Americans began to push their way uphill 198, the northern end of the Havan d'Argonne. The Germans in the immediate area concentrated their fires on the Americans who had broken through, and Rainsford 
soon had to pull his men back down the hill in order to prevent them being cut off and surrounded. His action opened a door of opportunity for Major Charles Whittlesey's force. The Germans were holding back the Americans, but only just so. The German 76th Reserve Division's Chief of Staff, one Hauptmann Friedrich Wilhelm von Siebel, and the Division Intelligence Officer, a Hauptmann Reinhard Bickel, two men managing the local front just behind where the shooting was taking place, were concerned. In their eyes, as Rob Laplander writes, quote, the Americans simply would not stop attacking. It seemed to be a bottomless pit of manpower. Not since the beginning of the war had they seen such large individual units or such recklessness in attack. The Americans simply kept coming, long after the French or Russians would have turned away, and they seemed willing to accept that casualties were part of the game. End quote. Both Captains von Siebel and Bickel knew their own units were stretched and shrunken by the past year's terrible battles, and that this was a game where they could not hope to match the Americans' reserves. Having contained the breakthrough, Germans shifted all available troops over to the eastern side of Hill 198 to stop any further attempt at splitting the line there. By doing so, they left an understrength machine gun company of older reservists covering the west side of the hill, along with a few teams of marksmen. On the American side, Major General Robert Alexander was in a rage about his division's progress through the Argonne. General Pershing was putting massive pressure on his corps and division commanders to move the line forward. According to his plans, they were supposed to have broken through the German third line some six days ago already. Alexander, one of the youngest division commanders and generally a man with a chip on his shoulder, was determined that he would not be one of those commanders relieved because he wasn't showing the proper amount of aggressive spirit that Blackjack wanted to see. So here we have to quote Finding the Lost Battalion again, as it says much about Robert Alexander's character and views on leadership. Quote, Perhaps then it was some measure of vanity that made General Alexander's next move what it was. There is, after all, ample evidence that the general was very aware of himself. Certainly, he knew that it was his duty to move his division forward by any means at his disposal, and casualties be damned that there was a larger picture involved. Some, perhaps, may also accuse him of overaction in this next move, but in reality, the situation needed a strong, aggressive division commander to drive men through the hell of the Argonne. Despite any criticism or fault-finding, there would be plenty of both in the post-war years, General Alexander never once doubted that what he did was the correct course of action. Indeed, he defended it until his death. His move? General Alexander lied. End quote. Alexander called his brigade commander, Brigadier General Evan Johnson, to tell him that his 154th Brigade and his brigade alone 
was holding up the advance of both the French and American armies. Everyone else was way past Johnson's brigade, and he needed to catch up and catch up now. Johnson took the phone call with an enraged silence and pushed something like, yes, sir, through teeth gritted with anger before Alexander hung up on him. Anyone with some experience in life can tell you that Shaisa rolls downhill. This time was no exception, and by midday, Major Charles Whittlesey received fresh orders from his regimental commander telling him to get a move on and break through that line with no regard for flanks or losses. Again, Whittlesey argued the point about being cut off again with Colonel Stacy. Stacy tried to end the conversation with a line that Whittlesey was just being panicky. Whittlesey, not one to generally lose control of his emotions, now snapped at his commanding officer. All right, he said, I'll attack. But whether you'll hear from me again, I don't know. The attack went in around 12.30 after a pathetic excuse of a barrage on the German lines. German machine gun fire raked the ravine floor and the sides of hills 205 and 198 in enfilading streams. But Whittlesey noticed that gunfire from Hill 198 began to drop off. On that hill, companies C and B were eliminating machine gun nests one by one. By drawing fire and fixing the Germans in place, men from Company B were able to outflank some machine gun teams and either kill them or capture them. Most of the older Germans surrendered when the American fire became too heavy on their positions, and they revealed that they were the only men on this part of the hill. They knew of no one else near them. Everyone else was busy fighting on the other side of Hill 198 and off on Hill 205. And so, in the early afternoon, the Doughboys had a lane open through the German lines. It was mid-afternoon when a runner brought down a message to Major Whittlesey and Captain McMurtry. Scouts were up on Hill 198, past the German trench line with no sign of the enemy around. With Lieutenant Shank's compliments, sir, the Major should really come and see for himself, if you please, sir, the message from Company C Commander Lieutenant Gordon Shank read. Major Whittlesey, Captain McMurtry, and the two battalion headquarters staff sections made their way up the hill. The two commanders thought this breach too easy after all the previous days, and they didn't want to get too excited. But soon, they were on the crest of Hill 198, meeting Lieutenant Shank on a road behind two trench lines snaking away in either direction to east and west. To the east, there was little in the way of gunfire or artillery from where the 307th should be operating. To the west, Whittlesey realized he had lost contact with his companies D and F, and he did not know what the French were doing on the other side of Hill 205. He would have to get into Charlevoix Ravine up ahead and then try to link up with them with westward patrols. With all of that happening, there was still the mission, 
The road on the north ridge of the Charlevoix had to be cut. Whittlesey had his breakthrough here, it seemed, and it was time to follow those orders. Companies B and C were already pushing ahead, and Whittlesey sent McMurtry forward to get command and control in place right away. He would soon follow. Behind him, men from the companies of the 1st and 2nd Battalions, 308th Infantry, with supporting men from Company D of the 306th Machine Gun Battalion, began streaming up the empty hillside and over the crest. Contrary to Major General Alexander's lie, because, you know, he had lied, the lead elements of the 308th Infantry were now way out ahead of both the French to the west and the 153rd Brigade to the east. Whittlesey's force now had its flanks in the air, but they were moving down the north slope of Hill 198 and into the Charlevoix. Messages from Whittlesey made their way to Regimental HQ and then Brigade HQ. Once at Brigade, Brigadier General Johnson took the information and immediately took action to correct what he considered disrespect to himself and his men. Evan Johnson had joined the Army as a private back in 1882 and had served in a career that saw a mix of combat as well as staff and teaching positions. He was every inch the professional, lifelong soldier, and his integrity would not be impugned. So, what did he do? Well, Johnson called his division commander. It was a Colonel John Hannay who picked up the telephone line at the divisional headquarters. Johnson read out his report to the colonel and then said, quote, I wish you would state this to the General Hannay. He told me that if I could not do the work, he would get someone that would. I want you to tell him just the conditions, which I know to be fact. On my left, the French are fighting on a line just in rear of my troops. I know this from a Corps observer who has just left them. On my right, the 153rd Brigade is on a line 275.5. My brigade is, or has been, away ahead of everything on my right or left. If he will look at the map, he will see it. Relatively, the French should be on a line 275.0, but they are actually back of my line. The 153rd Brigade should be relatively on a line 277.0, but they are actually in my rear. So these elements are not only relatively, but actually behind my troops. I want him to understand absolutely these conditions. The information was just given me by a Corps observer who has just left this office, and I know what I'm talking about. I have been ahead from the beginning, I am ahead, and I don't think I deserve the criticism you gave. Colonel Hannay relayed Johnson's remarks to Alexander, but of course, the Major General would not come on the phone. He knew he'd been called out. Instead, he had the Colonel tell Johnson... Congratulations on his achievement. No, Johnson said, I do not consider it a matter for congratulation, but I wish to put him absolutely in possession of the facts. End quote. And that, kids, is why you should never lie. It always comes back to you. Back up at the front, 
The battered elements of Major Charles Whittlesey's force of 1st and 2nd Battalion Doughboys poured down Hill 198 and into the Charlevoix Ravine. As the company spread out along a steep slope below the Binaville-Lavergette Road, a couple of Germans stood further down the road near the Charlevoix Mill buildings. They watched as dozens and then hundreds of cocky-clad soldiers spread across the ravine floor not far from them. The German soldiers knew they were enemy troops when rifle shots cracked and bullets whizzed close by. A short while later, Major Whittlesey began pushing patrols out to connect with his flanks, and to the west, the patrols there ran into Germans. Shots were fired, and in the chaos, an American private named John Hott of Company E was captured. Hours later, he faced interrogation by none other than Hauptmann Reinhard Bickel, who could speak English. Hauptmann von Siebel was there with him. By this point, the Germans knew they had a problem of unknown scale on their hands. Really, whatever scale it was, it was bad. Their line had been broken through, and the gap needed to be closed immediately. Otherwise, more Americans would get through the hole and then begin rolling up the German flanks. But to begin with, they needed to understand the size of the force in the Charlevoix Ravine. The young man, Hot, would tell them nothing. The next lines are quoted directly from Finding the Lost Battalion. Quote, Bickel, how many men have you there in the ravine? No answer. Bickel, we already know from others we have captured that you are the 308th Jaeger Regiment and your commander is the Major Whitsley. Are you of the 1st or 2nd Battalion? The prisoner smiled icily, said one word, and then shut up completely. Both. End quote. God, I love badass lines like that. Next time, we're going to dig in with the Doughboys of the Lost Battalion as they settle in for what will become an epic fight for their very lives. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at at www1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos, and check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.